0: We're back to the Neil Haley show and also the media giant effect. And I'm first w- excited to welcome the program, my co host, Dr. Deborah Matthew. Dr. Deb, how are you? I know you're excited about our guest today. We watched him on ships for we years, we did watch
1: oh, those motorcycles,
0: but I, but again, but Larry Wilcox, our guest. Literally, he's been in many more things than just chips, and uh, and his voice is synonymous, and I will always remember it. Larry, thanks for stopping by, man, and uh, catching up on the Neil Haley Show. We've been friends on Facebook for a while, and I appreciate you coming by.
2: Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank I- you both.
0: Absolutely. All right. Dr. Deb has come up with some really nice questions for you, and I will be asking the follow up as we are having this fun uh, this conversation. Go ahead, Dr. Deb.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, that chips role was so iconic, and of course, we all remember that. But can you tell us the story about how did you land that role?
2: Yeah, I'd been uh, before that, I'd done a lot of episodic guest star and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the producer, Rick Rosner, saw me in a Hawaii 5 0. And in a movie I did with Farrah Fawcett was my girlfriend called, uh, the great American beauty contest. And, uh, so he, I went on in an interview with him. He asked me, you know, did I ride a motorcycle? Well, first I read for him for a television pilot with Don Meredith, uh, called arrow bureau. And it was about uh, cops and helicopters. And uh, that didn't sell. We did it. We had a good time, Dandy, Don, and myself. And uh, then the next year, he said he wanted me to star in Chips and help him pick the other actor. And uh, by then, you know, I was a young actor. Young actors are boring. They start believing their own press and thinking they're an actor. And uh, that's probably where I was at that time. So I said I wasn't interested in doing Chips that I... I was becoming this actor now and better roles and so on. And there wasn't room for another cop show. And anyway, to make a long story short, uh, you know, prostitutes can always be bought. So uh, he offered more money and I eventually did chips and I should be so lucky. I had a great time. Now, so were no- you
1: a motorcycle rider when you went started the show?
2: I was, uh, but, you know, I I, humbly, I kind of got embarrassed. I learned so much from the CHP and we went through the CHP motorcycle training and, uh, you know, we got very proficient on the motorcycles, both Eric and myself. We had to lay them down and wreck them and do high speed braking and, You know, make the rear end come around to the front end uh, high speed braking and just some really and the really difficult part was turning figure eights in a real small area, a balancing brake and clutching on the motorcycle. We had Robert Pine who came and he just could not ride the motorcycle so he basically did entrances and exits um but good guy but the motorcycle wasn't his forte but he's a good actor
1: did you ever get hurt did you ever have any
3: accidents
2: i did i had a few you know if you've been on a motorcycle it's a matter of time and they're not safe instruments no matter who you are kind of like helicopters but um that's why insurance is so high but you know i wrecked a few and then when they were trying to perfect you know we rode the motorcycles that's number one eric and i number two is Were they ever on trailers? Yes, they were for close-ups and because they had to maintain focus on two people exactly next to each other. And they didn't want the noise of the motorcycle in the background. Um, In perfecting those trailers, they built some really weird ones in the beginning. And for, for a while, I had one where the front wheel was on the trailer and the back wheel was on the ground, which sounds great till you go around a corner and it doesn't turn and flips you off the motorcycle, you know? So it flipped me about 30 feet in the air. And I, luckily I had that rubber gun in my holster so that I hit my hip on that gun, which probably would have broke my hip. Otherwise Eric had a very tragic accident. He, he, they gave him last rites and, uh, he, they said he was dead. And so he had, um, come in on really hot and put on his brakes and, the camera truck wasn't in the position that they had rehearsed it. And uh so he he uh, actually laid the bike down but it high sided. So what happens is the motorcycle comes in, goes down like this, and then BAM like that comes back right at you and throws you in front of it and then crashes into you, broke his chest, his turn him and ruptured his aorta, they thought. And uh, they were going to fly him to Houston to open heart surgery in those days. That's the only place you went for open heart surgery, is how long ago it was. And, uh, but he ended up living, and uh, God bless him. He's here today. So, yeah, everyone had accidents. Doing stunts, I had accidents. And oh, wow. Chip's reunion, I had accidents. Doing fight scenes and hitting a tree and on top of a bus and took oh, out wow. the cameraman, hit him in the back of the head, almost took his head off. Oh, my gosh. Man.
0: You know, I think about those injuries, and so you did a lot of your own stunts, it sounds like.
2: I did a, I did quite a bit, but uh, actors always qualify that because actors always talk about, yeah, they did stunts. And Would you do ride to motorcycle in it? I mean, did you really do stunts? No, I didn't. I did stunts on the jet skis because I love those, and that was easy. I did stunts on horses and rodeo stuff because I do that. Um, but I didn't catch on fire, and I didn't do those really – bad uh, wrecks and stuff. The stuntmen did them and they were very talented and and crazy in those days because there wasn't much CGI special effects and they just wrecked.
1: <laughs> wow. So how much of your character was Larry? How much of you did you bring into the role?
2: Quite a bit, I think, because, you know, I, I always think that um, Chips was probably the most, one of the most difficult roles I ever had because it was so boring. So, you know, when you have a character that says 10 four every fifth page and is the straight man for Mr. Gorgeous, Eric Estrada, right. Then what do you do? You're the white envelope walking around, right. And uh, white bread. And so, um, you know, I had to try to figure out ways that didn't look like an actor begging for camera time and do it in subtle ways that uh, created some subtext, substance, uh, charm, loyalty, and character qualities that would grow over time. Uh, little subtle things that I did sometimes the direct the producers would get mad because, they wanted me to be ga goo goo when Eric's singing a song and dancing on stage. And I said, I'm not doing that. You know, that's, that's just ridiculous. And so I would do it a different way and they couldn't cut around it, you know, but it, it worked. And I think that the chemistry between the two actors is what was the really meat, if you will, the glue of the show.
0: Do you think that it would have been a success if you guys weren't getting along so well in the chemistry and all that?
2: Well, we weren't getting along in the beginning. Uh, later on, we started getting along. In the beginning, we were just two ego punks, and uh, I, th- you know, I take as much blame. Uh, you know, I first of all, I was from a very narrow, myopic culture, so I was a Wyoming cowboy that grew up in Wyoming, didn't know anything about anything, but thought he knew everything, and uh, and I, now I'm exposed to a Puerto Rican who grew up in Harlem who's bigger than life and is, you know, a latin cha-cha-cha guy and um so at first i think i judged that and uh unfairly and then uh you know pretty soon our relationship deteriorated you know eric was all about promoting himself at that time and i was too i he was just a a more attractive product to promote in terms of marketing and so I think we clash for a while. Now, you know, uh, and I, and I don't do public relations for actors, but now we really get along great. We have a great time. He's hilarious, and he, he, yes, he's bigger than life. He loves every girl. He tells them they're his favorite, each each one that comes in. So he's comedic, and he knows that He's he's not unlike Punch. So we get along good now. So back then, to answer your question, I think. We just worked hard on camera to make it look charming and chemistry was there.
1: Well, and you've done all kinds of things after chip So what are what are some of your really favorite experiences after the show?
2: Oh geez, I had so many uh you know my children are the best contribution I'll make in this world so that was great. uh always will be and I you know especially at my age now they're the greatest joy of my life. Um I'm over being, I don't really have a need to be great anymore. You know, all that greatness chasing gets boring. Um but <clears throat> I enjoyed the greatness chasing during my life. I enjoyed uh different roles like Dirty Does and was fun uh with my friend uh, the late the Andrew McLaughlin was a great director and he'd use me and almost everything Larry I'm going to get you in this next movie I'm doing you're going to star in it with blah 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 and okay great Andy and 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 then he would let me kind of write my characters and you know I had really fun and being all these different weirdos that I got to be so that was fun I got to direct two of the highest rated shows on chips so directing was fun and you know, directing is a lot of hard work because you're there the first and the last to leave, and then you got to go home and do homework. And, and then if you're acting also, like in my case, it makes it even more difficult. Luckily, Chips wasn't, you know, I wasn't having to do some Marlon Brando scene. It was uh, John Baker, which uh, 10-4 wasn't too hard. Um you know, after that, I, uh, you know, I got to take advantage of a lot of neat things. I got a lot of neat toys, you know, Porsches and Rolls Royces and horses and all the indulgent lipstick that you get from being on a television series. I flew in a lot of airplanes with pilots. I did uh, war games in A7s against F-16s. Uh, and uh, we really did them. Uh, we fought all the Air Force cadets up in uh, Colorado Springs and uh, three a7s and then i flew it i'm a pilot by the way also and so i got to fly and 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 then we lost our hydraulics and we almost had to eject because we had no nose wheel steering so i was with the top gun pilot but the problem was uh you know we had to catch a a cable with the hook on the back of the a7 and he'd never done it in his life because he's an air force pilot not a navy pilot and so we had to do it And they said, if you don't do it, we eject you. And you go through the glass of the canopy, it shoots you out. Mm -hmm. And then you'll pass out and you'll wake up and your uh, parachute will be open. So that was fun. We caught the wire, by the way, so we didn't have to eject. I had some of me wanted to eject and some didn't. Mm -hmm. I got to race cars and do the celebrity racing. And then I did regular racing and, uh, and then I started uh, producing. I produced a television series for five years all over the world, the Ray Bradbury theater. Yeah. I put that, that's a sad story. Really. I put that deal together with HBO. Uh, then we put it uh, together with Atlantis films in Canada and they screwed me. They, we raised the money for that project. We signed, we had the copyright at the time. And then, then we gave, they asked if they could please have the copyright cause they're helping us distribute it. And after five years of producing it and doing all that work and bringing an award winning project to HBO, then Atlantis Films did a very snarky, sneaky little thing. They, they did what's, this is what smart asses do in the business. They sold their share. So someone says, well, what do you mean they sold their share? Well, you owned a, you owned the company, right? Larry. Yeah. And they were partners. Yeah. So they just sold their share. Well, I guess they could do that. Not really, but someone might rationalize that they can. Not only did they sell their share, who'd they sell it to? Goldman Sachs. Oh, of course. And so where who owns it now? Because they're playing that on Amazon and all kinds of places. You can rent the Ray Bradbury Theater. Are you making any money? How much money did they sell all their their assets for? About three, four hundred million dollars. And how much did you make? Zero. And so when I called them to ask them, that was their, well, we sold our share. We, yeah, but did you stipulate in the contract that I was the partner? So 50% of any deal thereafter, I get it. So I, those are the kind of slime dogs that you have to deal with in the business. They always have a smart aleck rationale, but it, it, they're just parasitic and they're toxic for the film business. so But mm-hmm. yeah, I had a good time producing it. Yeah made good money while I was producing it. And then I produced the Dorothy Stratton story, the death of a playmate and a bunch of other stuff. I won't bore you with. And now I do technology. So uh, I'm into all kinds of really neat technology with UVC light and ultraviolet light uh, based on how we do it. We have nine patents companies called UVC and, um, we are able to, we're the, we think we're the only company in the world that, uh, and we haven't found any else that can do this yet, is that we can kill all bacteria and viruses in literally one second uh, and for up to 10 feet away. So any COVID or any kind of uh, virus on a surface or in the air. So in air conditioning HVAC systems, we were inside the actual tube and we kill all that bacteria flowing through your air conditioning or uh, in the air. And then if you have, a say, a surgical center, we kill it all with this great big device you can see at uvc.net. And um, we had about close to $20 million of pre-orders already. We just did our first HVAC show. And uh, all the major manufacturers want to put it inside their system, so I like that. And, and the last thing I'm doing is I'm presently negotiating two very, very large funding deals that I would be able to go back to friends and family and fund things that they've always wanted to do cause and give them a leg up in life like I got, which I'm humbled for and grateful for that's all. Wow.
0: That's you what know, I'm Larry, doing. we're gonna have to be back on just to talk about UVC because I have one. I know that,
1: I, I as I, a medical doctor now, yeah, all of a sudden no. I've got that so website.
0: The yeah. doctor, Deb, we have to have a round, a, a part two for sure. And I'd yeah. love to talk off air. Where's Where's the best place people can find information on you and stuff, Larry?
2: Uh, th- my website is LarryWilcox.net, but the uvcscience.net Probably is the only one that's been tested uh, by a laboratory in a university medical facility to make sure that our representations and warranty are true. So you can go to the website and find it.
0: Well, we appreciate it, Larry. Thanks. Thank again. you. Appreciate All right. it. All right. All right. Have a good one. and watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Oh, okay. we're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the Love Is Celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome the uh, author of Love Is, Kim Sorel. Kim, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guest.
3: Hi, Neil. I'm doing great. And yes, I am so excited about Gigi Orsello. She has been acting since she was two and a half years old, two and a half years old. Can you imagine? And has been in commercials and films on TV and done so many things. Has three beautiful daughters, a dog named Betty Boo of all of <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and just graduated um. with the highest distinction right from college uh, summa cum laude which is amazing and Gigi you're beautiful and wonderful and I am so excited to talk to you running the bases what a great movie and so welcome welcome to our show. Thank you so much that's so
4: kind of you I'm so happy to be here so I'm I'm excited to talk to you guys today.
3: So I love running the bases. Oh good. (laughs) <laughs> what a great movie, and you are so incredible in it. I loved Family Camp too, by the way. Oh, totally thanks! Character in this one, yeah. But, uh, what a great character. I mean, the way marriage is portrayed, the way women yeah. are portrayed. Like, what? what did you? When,
4: when I was when I first met the directors and writers of the film, um, Marty Roberts and Jimmy Womble, they as they described this character to me, they said we want to see strong women portrayed on the screen. Um, and you'll notice that with the, the mom, the mother character, Mama D, uh, they wanted to show women who are strong, supportive wives and mothers and aren't just kind of like there on the side, you know, because we have such an important role um, in not only our, our husbands, um, Visions and their their callings, but like for the whole family, the the greater stretch of it all. And I think that they wanted to portray the fact that um, a strong marriage really can uh, make a difference in in so in your in your calling. So I love that they they put those scenes in there where she is basically saying, "No, you are going to stick to what God has told you to do." And and she sharpens him to make him um make him better. So yeah, I, I love this role so much.
0: You know, you know, Gigi, what's interesting when you talk about this is that the fact is that it's so important to have a good woman by your side. If you don't have <laughs> you don't have a right life partner with you or be with somebody in the right way, you're not going to really transform yourself to be the pure person that you need to be.
4: Right. Yeah. And I think um I think that this movie is such a great example to show that sometimes we are weak in our own, you know, in our own strength and we need people, wives, friends, community to say, I will stand there with you. I will fight with you. I will help you, you know, hold you up when you're weak. And, and uh, of course with the Lord's help, but I do, I just, I love the, the picture of uh, two is stronger, than one and three is the most powerful, right? Three the, the three, the three chord.
3: Yeah, you know, there's a scene that I think uh, was so good, but I, I wonder how many people really paid attention to it enough. And that's when you decided to move to Texas. Oh, yeah. Because that was a big thing. Your son was, a, the character is a junior, going to be a junior yes. in high school. I mean, that's hard for a kid. You know, you've, yeah. you you were where you grew up and all of that. And yet the way the scene played out was just beautiful.
4: Thank you. Yeah. I think um when her first reaction is no way am I doing that? <laughs> <laughs> like, you're, you're crazy. And then when he tells her that he feels that it's like that God has been speaking to him about this, the fact that she respects that she respects the the fact that he has a stirring in his spirit. To do something, um, it just shows you the relationship they they have had, and the fact that they've been friends for so long, and then you know, in in marriage for so long, the fact that they that she says, if God is telling you, He's telling me, you know. So, yeah, I love it. I love that scene.
0: Absolutely. And what do you think you learned most from doing this film?
4: Oh, what I learned most from doing this film. Well, I think uh, the thing that I have learned most is just that when one person stands up, it really can make a ginormous difference because the ripple effect um, can be so huge, right? When one person says, this is what God's called me to do, you never know the impact that it's going to have. And I think that even just in the filmmaking, um, the directors came up against so many um so many issues to say, no, it's too much Jesus. This is too strong of a message. There's too much prayer. There's too much this. Um, and even to get funding for it or to get distribution for it, but they just kept saying, no, this is what God has called us to do and we're going to do it. And so it's, it's a, it's a fun, like, symbol of what they went through the actual film of saying, no, this is what God has called me to do. And I'm going to do it. And then to see how it affects one of my favorite scenes is, um, you know, in the kitchen, I say, this whole town is watching you. They're watching you to see what you do. And he doesn't really think about that. He's like, no, I'm just doing this thing. And then my favorite scene is when he sits at that ball game and he sees the little boy, start to run the bases. And he realizes people are watching and I am making a difference. And they are going, why is he doing that? Why should I do it? And then I just love that. I love that little piece.
3: Oh my gosh. I love that little piece too. I cried. I cried most of the movie. It's uh, it is a movie that you definitely want a box of Kleenex nearby. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was so good. And um, I also love when uh the turned around baseball cap oh the the younger you but you know like some of the scenes the older you i thought gosh you should have a baseball cap on now because you'd be turning it around right (laughs) you have to say and just kind of hammering the points home but not just a wife but also a mother yeah you know, and
4: mother- one of, another wonderful scene that I really love is, um, you know, one of the kids in one of the players has a uh, has a mom who has died, um, and he's really struggling. And the fact that she gets to have a sweet impact on these kids as well, these kids in her community, because I remember when I was a kid, my mom did that for my neighborhood friends and my school friends, and friends who were dealing with abuse at home or dealing with whatever, they came to my mom because she was the safe place because she showed them kindness, you know? And so I loved in that scene, I was thinking about how my mom did that for my friends. So yeah, I love that. And, and women really do have so much power for a community, for our kids, friends, for, you know, just the whole community. So yeah.
0: It's such yeah, great. So stuff. Go ahead, okay. go ahead, Kim. Sorry.
3: Yeah, I was just going to say that's so true. And, you know, the, the one thing that I wanted was the home that everybody would come to, that all yeah. the friends would feel welcome. And that is what you portrayed in the movie, having the sleepover and grilling out and having the boys over because the relationship wasn't a typical maybe. Well, I don't know, Is it was such a deep relationship coach with the kids Mm -hmm. and it had such a bigger impact his whole goal your husband in the movie's whole goal was so much more than teaching baseball yeah yeah for sure
4: and i and i think that teams and coaches have really loved to have loved to bring their their kids to this as as you know an entire either baseball team or football team or soccer team to say this is it is more about more than winning. It's about how we can strengthen each other, how we can be better people, better men, better players. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's so many different totally, little messages. Totally. I phone. think
0: sports brings such community and yes. the community because there's a community of the players, the parents, everyone together, all together. And if it's the right message. In sports and where it's it is competitive, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's about friendships and relationships and learning how yes. to lose, learning how to uh, get along with others. Sports really, people who play sports really can get that angle, and it's good that this yes. involved baseball to put that out there because it's showing, hey, if we're not doing these things, we're not doing the right thing running our baseball organization or doing different things. If you're not having the results like the story, it's, right
4: yeah there. sports really team sports has so many life lessons and especially like the coach I, i i have so much admiration for coaches that you know they they don't usually make a ton of money and they really a lot of them do do it for um the love of of teaching kids how to be you know better adults
3: yeah, so true. So true. I coached for years. And oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's a funny thing with God. It's like you think you're giving, but you can never be outgiven. Right. With yes. the things that you do, you can just never be outgiven. So as a mom yourself with your three beautiful, beautiful daughters. Oh, I think. Uh, what what did you see uh, with the movie? Was there any mom thing that came out that that you use at home or that's part of you? Sorry, you you cut out just a tiny bit. Can you re- repeat what you said? Yeah. So is there a mom thing, you know, something as a mom that, that you use in the movie that you bring home or that you use at home that you brought to the movie?
4: Oh, my goodness. I think motherhood has changed my acting so much just because I can. It, it, motherhood is the well of emotion. You know, it's like you can feel frustration and you can feel anxiety and fear and you can feel love and you can feel all these deep emotions that it's brought out in me to be able to bring to screen. I have seen like such a difference in, in what I'm able to bring emotionally since being a mom. Um, But yeah, I, I think um, I love to bring my girls to set. I love for them to get to see what mom does when she's gone and to see that it's, it is more than just going and you know being in a scene and doing it, it is a community even on a film set
5: mm-hmm. and
4: um, and it's so fun because you know on these faith based productions there are a lot of believers but there are also plenty of crew that are not and i always love to get to set and go god who who am i here for <laughs> you know and 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 it, you know we all we still sharpen each other as believers but it's fun to go Oh, have a conversation on set and go, Oh, this is one of the reasons I'm here, you know? And so kind of getting to have them experience that and, and Absolutely. them to go, Oh, mom is mom is on a mission too, you know, she's not just, um, you know, going to be a movie star, you know?
0: So Gigi, where's the best place people can watch the film right now? Where's the best place? Yeah.
4: Um, Well, if you go to runningthebasesmovie.com, you can see uh, where it's playing right now, where it's streaming. Um, The DVD will be out soon, so you can go and pre-order it. There's a bunch of different places you can pre-order it. I know you can do that on Amazon, because I did. (laughs) I went and bought my pre-order. So yeah, runningthebasesmovie.com.
0: We appreciate it. Thank you again.
4: Yeah, thanks, guys.
0: Okay, you're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show and also the media giant effect. And I'm excited to have on the show. My co-celebrity author, Paul Hollis, author of the Hollow Man series. Paul, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guest today.
5: I'm great. And I'm looking forward to, to all your guests today and especially Samantha.
0: Absolutely. I'm excited. So I'm excited to welcome to her I'm actor Samantha Simone. And she's going to talk about, uh, I just find this really a great story, a townhouse confidential. Samantha, how are you? But we're going to kind of break down first your career as an actor and stuff like that, and then get into townhouse confidential, because we're going to be highlighting this on the Neil Haley show with four interviews because I just find it fascinating because I have a I have friends that are in New York. I've visited New York. And, wow, it's so cool to highlight New York City, right, and especially the places and the cool places to go.
6: Absolutely, yeah. Townhouse, is it takes us through the historic West Village and growing up as a New Yorker and New York adjacent, it was really cool to be able to film in such, like, iconic places like Magnolia Bakery and um, Joe's Coffee, John's Pizza, you know, all those fun places, so.
0: All right, let's talk about how, did you always want to be an actor? Is that something, or was that something growing up you always wanted to do?
6: Good question. I feel like I was a normal kid until I was like eight, where I was like, I'm going to be the president, an astronaut, a firefighter, and I don't know, solve cancer. I, like, I wanted to do it all. And then uh, I wanted to be a rockette when I was little, like dancer. Oh, okay. My original thing. um, I took an acting class when I was 10 and then booked my first TV job shortly after that and kind of fell in love with the process on set. Uh, So I'd say it like became a realization for me around 10 years
5: old.
0: And Paul, would you say the same thing? When did you you always wanted to be an author? Just later you wrote the books, right, of your story.
5: Um, Yeah, uh, life got in the way, uh, but certainly yeah, always wanted to write books. Yeah.
0: Oh, his story's amazing. We'll get to it, Samantha for sure. Now, Samantha, what was the first gig you booked for TV?
6: Yeah. My first uh, when I was a kid, it was on the uh, it was on the BBC Network. It was a kid's cooking show called Planet Cook. Oh. Uh, but my role that I'm probably most known for is on CBS Blue Bloods. I play uh, the Tarot Tech named McKenna on seasons eight and nine.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. But like talk about specifically once you booked the, the the series as a kid, you're so you grew up almost like in a child actor type of thing. How did you keep love of acting going even starting so young? Because a lot of people who do it when they're young feel burned out and say, I got to get out of this. I got to be in the regular day-to-day life because I, I was always on set. I was always doing things. And I'm like, no, it's something different.
6: Totally. Yeah. I thank my parents a lot for that. They really... It, it always had to come from me if I didn't, wasn't having fun. And if I didn't love it, they told me I could stop at any time. Like nothing ever came from them. It was all self-generated. Um, and my grandfather was a musician. So I loved like being in the arts and being around it forever. Um, I also thought it was really cool that I got to leave school. So like, <laughs> that was great. I was like, bye guys.
0: <laughs> all right, cool. Cool. So um, to talk about specifically after that, Did you take time off from acting when you were a child actor or did you kind of say you just kept working for that process
6: yeah i um when we moved so we lived in the uk for four years when we moved back here my parents were like go to school you can keep auditioning and like do you know that kind of thing so i did like a couple investigation discovery shows and uh majored in acting and elementary education in my undergrad then got my master's degree in acting from columbia uh, right after so I've always kind of been still auditioning and still uh, working, but I do have, I teach as much as I perform. Uh, now I teach acting. So it's very much like aligned with everything, but um, yeah, I've, I've never really stopped. I just kind of pivoted a little bit out of the, my parents were like, you are not going to be a Disney channel star. It's not your future. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Paul, a question to ask, especially if you ever wanted to act, Paul, you got an acting teacher here. What acting question do you have for her?
5: Oh my gosh. Um, Yeah, tell me how to act when there's another person in the room.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I I have trouble with that. I always, I'm a big believer in just like dropping into your breath, taking a deep breath, centering yourself and knowing you feel like, it's all about confidence, right? Like no matter what these characters are going through is just owning who you are at any given moment. So it's just like, here I am. (laughs) <laughs> unapologetically listening and responding, breathing together, all that fun stuff.
5: Yeah, you know, that's, so that's it. That's great advice.
0: Exactly. And Paul is 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 again, his story is amazing. But let's just jump. When I want to talk to you about Samantha, we're going to go in some acting questions, and we'll get right into the film. I oh my goodness. I want. I ended up one time auditioning and then I stopped because I don't like memorizing lines, okay? I'm a former professional wrestler. I don't know if you checked out my background, Samantha. I'm yeah. a former pro wrestler. The Rock wore my knee pads. I was in the, the the Attitude Era pro wrestling. I can act very well. I can do it really well. You asked me to go and do improv, I can do it. But when it comes to memorizing lines, and I've said this on my podcast before, it's not easy. And how do you do it in a way that doesn't seem so robotic in phase? Because you're creating a character that really isn't your character. Some of it could be you, but not all of it.
6: Totally. Yeah. I have a different approach per tech, like the different texts. I find TV, film, and like <clears throat> story things to be easier to do while I'm doing something physical. So I'll like go to the gym, put it on the treadmill, and just like walk and learn my lines that way. Um, so that your body is doing something else while your brain is memorizing Uh these lines. Um, Shakespeare, I have to just sit and go word by word because if you (laughs) mess up one word, you mess up the entire rhythm. So like that is a little bit more precise. Um, but I find keeping my body engaged while learning the lines is really helpful, um, I feel like I'm the traditional like walk around New York like a crazy person and talk to myself while I'm learning lines and people look at you like, what is she doing? But it's, it really helps me to just like physicalize it to make it more natural and less robotic.
5: <clears throat> I found, <clears throat> excuse me, I found when you're talking to yourself, it's always good to have your cell phone in your hand. So that way people think you're on the phone. You know, I the love time. that. It's like, <laughs> <laughs>
0: right? <laughs> Yeah, and memorization is something that used to be a a skill that we were taught in school. Paul could talk about that, and I could too, as well. I constantly had to memorize stuff. So I probably would understand that. I think that I am such an actor or wannabe actor because of pro wrestling that we never had lines and scripts. Vince McMahon changed a lot of that with the WWE later, years later, where no one can go off cuff anymore. They use they have writers who tell them exactly what they need to say in their promos. When we were around back in that day, and if you watch the show Young Rock on NBC, you'd understand a lot of it. It's a lot more of the creative end of things when we were doing promos. They'd say, "Okay, you're doing a promo. They're in this town, this time. Go ahead, shoot it for television. Go and live whatever character you were living." Well, I didn't even like that. And I created a character for myself later where I just go off the cuff and talk. And I guess that's why I'm a talk show host, right? I guess that's why I like to do what I do because I come up with questions off the top of my head. I don't need to uh, do anything. And I I don't like a script. Even when people send me stuff and say, okay, read this opener. I'm like, no, I want to just talk the way I want to talk. It's like are you, are you are you kidding me? Are there are there actors out there that could do that? So let's just say I'm not a kind of script guy, but I'm really into specifically character acting or improv or different things. Is there opportunities for me in in to be an actor that way or not?
6: Absolutely. Yeah, I think there in New York there's such a healthy improv and stand-up comedy world and a lot of those folks do get brought into acting because a casting person will come see whatever shows at UCB or at the Magnet or, you know, like the big ones. um, And they'll be like, hey, come do my, you know, come audition for this, get cast in this. Um, I find that once you're on set, there's a lot of play um, that does happen with the text and with the characters. So knowing who the character is really, really deep down, like doing all that backstory work and all that fun stuff, gives you the opportunity to play in the room. Um, And a lot of the times directors will see that and they'll be like, okay, that line sounds weird. Why? And it's like, cause I wouldn't say this, you know? So it's like, and not me, the character just wouldn't say this. Um, and then we play around to find a way to to make it sound more natural and have, and have
7: more fun.
0: You know, and that's the the interesting part of all this is when whoever wrote this, like Paul's a writer, he, one point his book will someday be a a, a screenplay and a movie or or TV series. And his story is amazing because the books that he, he he's like Jack Ryan, but get this, he, this is what's so cool about him. He lived it. He did all those things. So imagine what Jack Ryan did. If you were talking the real live Jack Ryan, so his books are really based on his life, which is crazy uh, with uh, terrorism back in the 1970s. So when you think about putting someone else's words to life, that's the challenge you have. That's the challenge of the director. That's the challenge of everyone to say, this doesn't sound like the character because I'm really living and breathing it. So the character you played as a lead, you had to put so much time and effort and explain that and tell us that character and that character development. I do a lot of my interviews where when I have one-on-ones, I don't want to tell the story. I want to tell more of that development as that character, how you developed that character. So tell me how you developed it.
6: Yeah. Um, so Liz, uh, Liz Perry is the name of the character I play in Townhouse, Confidential. Um, she is very much like the Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice. Um, but she also has a lot of, a lot of my work, um, came from the fact that she's a baker and she also loves like architecture. She is a true New York fan, like loves the city she lives in. Um, and she's got, yeah, her and her sisters bicker and have their sisterly moments, but, They lost their parents and they now have this house that's falling apart, but she still loves her sisters. Um, so being an older sister myself to a younger sister who is a baker professionally, um, (laughs) I did a lot of character development with my sister of like, okay, so tell me why, like what makes you tick? Because I feel like bakers are more specific and more perfectionists than chefs because like, you can fix something along the way, like if you're cooking, but baking, you can't because it just comes out wrong. And then you have to start all over. Um, so that was really interesting. And then being a native New Yorker myself, I just took a, you know, I walked around the West village a lot to be like, okay, what do these people do? Like, who are these people? Because as a kid, I'd always walk around the West village and be like, yeah, they're all rich. Like, that's just what it is. They're just wealthy people. But that's not true. Those are like real humans who own these these townhouses that have the same issues that my Brooklyn apartment does. Yeah. Hold on one sec.
0: Okay. All right. So let's go back, Paul. Paul, thoughts about you and your experiences in New York?
5: Um, mostly, mostly mine were, were business related. So I, I was not, uh, so I was always in Manhattan or or LaGuardia. <laughs> right? so, okay. So but
0: you did, what, what were your favorite places to go in Manhattan, Paul?
5: Well, um, you know, I, anything in Times Square, I just, I love to be in that atmosphere of just around Times Square and, and just to, to. Understand and, and and relate to people there that are that are native New Yorkers and and uh, that have lived there a long time and, and and it's like you see the you see the city different than 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 talking to another tourist yeah so.
0: exactly and that's where I'm learning more and more of how I need to explore New York now than when I was just a tourist and that and so give that final thing of watching this film and seeing a lot of the movies and TV shows that really do a great New York thing. To teach that stop being a tourist of New York. What would you say from this film will teach you the really understand a little more of New York than what tourists think of it?
6: Yeah. Well, I mean, kind of going back to little, little kid, Sam, who like walked through the West Village and was like, rich people live in these homes. Liz has a great little monologue that says like this townhouse is falling apart and all of that. And it's like, don't judge New York by its cover, I think is a big Big lesson to take away from Townhouse Confidential. And then also just like these iconic places that are, are known for their appearances in TV shows like Magnolia Bakeries and Sex in the City and things like that. It's like, yes, but it is a living, breathing bakery. Like it is not just... It is not just this bakery that exists. Oh, I've heard
0: heard Magnolia Bakery's name a thousand times lately. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I can't wait to go. All right. Where can people check out the film? I know it's already available on VOD, right? It went in theater release already. Where can people go?
6: Yes. Uh, If you're interested in checking it out, I would head over to Apple TV, Amazon Prime. Um, We're on Vimeo, Google Play, iTunes, pretty much anywhere you can rent them. And if you still have an archaic DVD player... We
0: have DVDs. <laughs> Someone was saying they're going to send me a Blu-ray of this film. And I'm like, okay, I don't have a Blu-ray player. And what's the, exactly. I'm like, 4D, the 4D? All I know is streaming. That's what I do is stream. Come on. Why, why do I want a bunch of things to take up space now? You know, it's like, where can we follow you on social media? Where's best place?
6: Social media. I have a Facebook and an Instagram. Uh, my Instagram is Sammy, S-A-M-I, Sims, S-I-M-S 21. Um, you'll get all the dog content you could ever want. My dog is adorable. Um, and then Facebook is Sam Simone. I also have a website. It's NicoleSimone.com.
0: We appreciate it. Thanks again. Thanks again. All right. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to Neil Haley's show and also the media giant effect and, you know, and also shout out to BPTV Channel 7 in Pittsburgh because this will be airing there as well. And I first want to welcome my co-host, Dr. Ted Grelner. Dr. Ted, how are you, man? What's going on?
8: Hey, doing great, Neil. I'm looking forward to speaking to this guest. What an interesting guest you have today.
0: Oh, yes. Kenny Stockard. Uh, You know, wow. I'm just impressed by it. Pittsburgh musician. I mean, that made it. And that's in so many ways, worked with so many amazing artists. And he's going to tell us the whole story. Kenny, thanks for stopping by. And Kenny, how did it start for you? Tell us the story. Did you always want to be a musician? Is that something growing up you wanted to do?
7: Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, I, I have always been a musician. Yeah, my family, they're all musicians. And so I kind of just grew up into this uh, family, family business, so to speak. And so I've always been in the game. But uh, then I started singing at church as like a really young kid, about five or six, I want to say. And so I've been singing ever since then. And in that singing process, did you know you had a gift? I knew I could sing, but I didn't know I had a gift because everybody in my family sings. So I didn't, I didn't recognize it as a gift. I just thought it was something that everybody could do, even outside of my family. And so it wasn't until I started school that I realized um, that not everybody could do it. And that's when I started to realize it was a gift.
0: Okay, go ahead, uh, Dr.
8: Ted, your first question.
7: I, you know, for a number of years, I played
8: the oboe. And one of the things that I enjoyed the most, the fact that when you do a solo, it, it's just, it's so gratifying to get the, your pitch right, to get your, your, your music down right, just to hear your, your everything come back to you. It's, it's a joy to the soul. And, um, and imagine being a vocalist like yourself, you must have those, those really gratifying feelings when you're, when you're singing for, a, for an audience that really is getting into your music.
7: Oh, definitely. Yeah. I always feel like, um, I just feel mm. like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And I'm just, most of the time when that happens, I'm trying to make sure that I don't mess that up or like lose that moment, like try to make it last as long as I can. Hmm almost like being in the zone. Oh, definitely. I, we Some people call it being in the pocket musically, which is like when everybody is just exactly where they should be, we're all like excited because we made it there, but we're also nervous to try to be protective of that space and to maintain it as long as we can. Mm.
0: No, it's really yep. interesting, Dr. Ted, is he's not just a musician, he wrote a book and that's gotta be crazy, right? The Fireballer, how did that come out? How did that come about, you know, Kenny, and
7: wanting to do the novel? Uh, Are we talking about my my children's book? Yes. That's on the way. Yeah. So that that book, it just happened naturally. I wanted to start telling stories of my upbringing, like the older I got, the more I realized how atypical my upbringing was. And I wanted to just tell stories that sounded like mine. And so, like, I grew up in a family. My mom raised me, but my grandparents had an equal hand in raising me. And so, and then my aunts and uncles also did as well. And I was raised in the house with all of my first cousins, like siblings. And so I just wanted to tell that story. So I started working with an illustrator and started writing this story. And it just has naturally evolved over the last uh, three years, I want to say.
0: Right, excellent. And the, the Christmas, album. come on a little bit more about the Christmas album as well. You're excited about that, too.
7: Oh, definitely, yeah. So I that released December eleventh, a very Kenny Christmas. Uh, that date, December eleventh, twelve eleven, is super important to me because that's uh, the address where I grew up. My grandparents' address was twelve eleven uh, in St. Louis, and so I wanted to honor them by releasing something on that date. But it's also just a, a family project of just me writing about and singing about my experiences of Christmas as a child growing up in that dynamic. Go ahead, uh, Ted, with your next question.
8: I'm from St. Louis as well. And I know that uh, oh, my before my time, there was the St. Louis blues was was huge in terms yeah. of, you know, the the, the jazz right. uh, period. Mm-hmm. Was that part of your, your
7: family's upbringing? Were they part of that at all? Oh, you mean, you're talking about blues, the music. I thought you meant the hockey team, the St. Louis blues. Uh-huh. I got you. I got you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah blues... Blues, the, the art form, yeah. Blues and um, R&B, soul and gospel are very big uh, musical genres in my family. Mm-hmm. Cool. And what would you consider your biggest, your big break, Kenny? How did that happen? Uh, I don't know that I feel like I've had a big break. I just, I hey, just... You know, you look at your, some of the things that have happened. What do you think like the biggest thing that's kind of put you on the trajectory where you are now? Uh, I guess it would be uh when i became a background singer for the common heart after that things really went full time for me and they uh doors just started opening up all around the world who discovered you from that uh so it was a a friend of mine who was a background singer in the band we we worked in pittsburgh together on the music scene and when an opening came up she came mariko is her name she came to me and said hey we have an opening spot Do you want to audition for it? And so I did. And then Clinton and the whole band, they really accepted me. And I really loved, you know, just how crazy they were. And we just got on the road and started doing it.
0: That's cool. And that process.
7: And then where do you want to see yourself as a musician? Continuing to work. I just want to I want to keep a job. I don't want to have to think about, you know, you know, a lot of musicians struggle with uh, having to find side work to make it uh, all make sense, you know, financially. And I'm just thankful that I got through that phase and I just want to be able to continue this way. I want to be able to like have a sustainable career in music for the rest of my life. And that process was hard to get to that point, right? Where you don't have to do anything but music. That's very okay. hard. Yeah. And it's very hard to protect because like much like I don't make as much money and the temptation is to go pick up a side job. But it's like I could also just sit down and like be more creative at home and continue to write and, you know, think about the next time that I go out and how I want that to look. And I found a lot more um, benefit in just being still when I don't have as much work versus going to, you know, hustle, hustle, hustle and never leaving space for that creative uh, the creative process to expand in myself. Okay, go ahead and tap with your next question.
8: I, I was not familiar with your work until I started doing some studying about you, and and I started watching your videos, okay. and it I have to tell you, it it brought to me a feeling of joy watching your smile, your your freedom of uh, just expression, uh, your your relaxed attitude. The the videos were fantastic, and and so I got to reading some of the descriptions of the music, and and darned if their description really ended with joy.
7: Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I so, love. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go
8: ahead. I'm go sorry. ahead. Well, uh, so do you? Do you, is that a feeling you have when you're when you're doing those those songs and and uh, and the videos because it seems like it comes right out.
7: Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I, I'm i very happy about what I do. And I and it, it fuels me. It's not even like uh, I have to put on happiness when I'm doing it. it. It just comes out of me because I'm so excited because I'm, I'm 32 and I've only been doing music uh, full time since like my mid 20s. So I lived a whole career of like corporate America. And so I just I really understand what it means to be able to do what you love all day, every day. And I don't I don't take that for granted.
0: And your tour is going all over the place, right, Kenny? That's got to be great. You know, I mean, think about the days of COVID when you you guys couldn't travel at all. Right. Warm again. It's fantastic, isn't
7: it? Definitely, yeah. Like, the... The things are opening up so much so that I'm back to having to be like, okay, I got to decide what I can do and what needs to wait, which is a good feeling. Because, yeah, like in COVID, we were itching to work and I was getting I was getting sad because I'm like, I just I can't work as much as I'd like to. But, yeah, those days they they came and they went. Exactly. And you're touring all over the country. You said you're right now in Colorado. Are you going where's your tour headed after that? This is the last place that I'll be outside of home. So I'll be going to St. Louis tomorrow to spend time with my family. And I have one last show with the Common Heart on December 30th. And then I'm taking the month of January off just to reassess and to take a break and, you know, the rest. And then in February, I hit it back again. I think I'm going to Texas early March and then a few other days. Like, real, not a big tour. Dallas, but just te- Dallas, we're in Texas. I'll be in Austin for South by probably. That'll probably be the next time I travel and. and far away from home at least
0: oh, okay okay
7: well if you're going through dallas we'll have to definitely connect to pittsburghers for sure connected oh yeah i can. I, we'll have to make that happen yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah it's definitely yeah and then i guess the the dream of of, of just of, of a Pittsburgher making it it's got to feel great it's got to feel great where you're at where you're going what is your ultimate goal for your music where do you want to see yourself a grammy what do you do you have the specific things
7: and your wish list of where you want to see yourself I definitely, I have people I want to work with for sure. I I really want to work with uh, PJ Morton, who is like a New Orleans, like soul, neo soul artist. Uh, I want to, I want to perform on the Grammys. I mean, it'd be nice to be recognized by the the Academy also, but you know, that's like, that's so far in my head from where I am right now. I'm just like, I'm, I'm looking for it when that opportunity comes, but I'm also like, I got a whole lot of other goals of like, just, I just really want to start working more with other artists first. And how do you think that reach out?
0: You did work with some art authors, you got artists, you got on CBS, all these different things.
7: Mm-hmm. What do you, is it your hustle or you have a great team to hustle for you? Oh, it's an incredible team. It is not all me. I mean, I reached the limit of what I could do a couple of years ago. And so I got people like Sammy, my publicist and my management, Keystone artists Connect, and then like the TSG Photography that does like all of my videos and photos and things. And, and and many other people like, you know, uh, everybody that works around the music business outside of the people on stage. So many people are on this team and helping me. So what do
0: you want to tell your fans in Pittsburgh? I mean, you have fans all over the world, but
7: what about when you want
0: to tell people in Pittsburgh that are watching this, especially on television and YouTube and all that stuff?
7: Hey, what's up, Pittsburgh? We up. That's all I want to say. Like, yeah, <laughs> we, it's it's good. It's good to you know, be able to claim that place because I, I learned a lot and I grew a lot as a Pittsburgh musician. And that's like, we all celebrate when somebody, you know, makes it to the next step. So hey, just keep, I say to every other musician, just keep on the lookout because you're, you're coming up next.
0: And your thoughts about, again, the loss of Franco Harris, that's tough. That's yeah, tough. I, that's I, was tough. Talk. I have a picture with him from when the uh when mr rogers movie was there i was on the red carpet with them and took a picture with them i thought i was gonna get an interview with them i've interviewed many celebrities and i couldn't believe after seeing all this stuff the next day people posting Franco passed
7: man yeah that was that's yeah it's been really sad for the city just uh seen so much, you know, so many people sharing photos on my timeline. And even when I went to the airport, they had a very nice dedication of Frank O'Hara at the Pittsburgh airport in front of where the Christmas tree normally is, where they had a live statue of him in his uh, uniform and in all of the I always remember that, yeah. Yeah, and I... It was beautiful, but it was like nice because they, they put it out prominently now. So now it's as soon as you come off the train and go up the steps, it's right there, really big
0: yeah. in the front. And when I fly, I see that I'm like, man, and, and again, and not, not thinking about that. I have a picture with LC Greenwood. I don't know, because you're a little bit younger than I am on 70s Steelers and, and and that LC was almost as tall as me. And wow. he passed too. So you know it's just like we're losing yeah. all of the great Steeler greats from the beginning. So this is it. There's going to be magic, right? Somehow the Steelers will make the playoffs and
7: go. That's hope. You never That's know. Hope. You it's never so know. Great, I don't think can do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't give up hope for sure. You don't give all up hope. Right. All right, Kenny, best place people can find you. Where can they go? Uh, My website, Kennystocker.com Everything. All of my other links are all connected to that. My music and my social profiles. And, Ted, you're a fan now of Kenny's, right? You're going to be checking out his music now, right,
0: after getting familiar with him.
8: Yep, yeah, absolutely. I, I can't wait to to listen to some more. All
0: right. We appreciate it, Kenny. Thank you, Ted. All right, guys, you're listening
1: and watching the Neil Haley show. And we'll be back. It turns out that really any kind of exercise is good. You don't have to exercise an hour every single day to get some heart health benefits. And it doesn't have to be cardio resistance exercise where we're we're using weights and building muscle is really healthy too. our heart is a muscle. Um, So any kind of exercise is better than no exercise. So lace up your sneakers and get out there because exercise is good for your heart. Another thing that's actually really important for our heart is what you're eating. And there's been mixed messages that have been super confusing over what is heart healthy and what is not heart healthy. Because you know, you watch some of these TV shows, you know, the doctors and some of these other health shows, and on Monday, there's gonna be a guest that says that you should be vegetarian. And then on Tuesday, there's a guest who says, no, eggs are good for you. And then on Wednesday, it's something different. And it's so confusing. But the one thing that everybody agrees on is that sugar is not good for us and sugar is not good for our heart health. We focused a lot on fat, but we probably should be focusing more on cutting back on our sugar and the processed starchy carbohydrates, you know, the white stuff, the white bread, the white rice, white potatoes, um, doing those in moderation. And the story with fat is a little bit more complicated because it's not that fat is bad for us. The reality is there are some fats that are,